All boring films are alike. Every great film is great in its own way. And when we think of the great war pictures set in the last hundred years, what sets them apart is the way they greatly expand the horizons of an often highly problematic genre. All too frequently, war films are propaganda, designed to support conflict without ever questioning the wider implications of humankind's greatest failing. And while some films do step beyond the propaganda to examine our vulnerability, most films merely up the violence, thinking it deepens the examination. Which means it is a very rare film that creates a new vision of war and what it does to us. Consider G.W. Papp's West Front 1918, Jean Renoir's La Grande Illusion, Roberto Rossellini's Rome Open City, André Vige's Canal, Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, Kony Chikawa's Fires on the Plain, Giulio Pontecorvo's The Battle of Algiers, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, Ellen Klimov's Come and See, Iso Takahata's Grave of the Fireflies, and Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk belongs in that list. Dunkirk was a phenomenon so unique in modern warfare it has taken filmmakers over 80 years to figure out how to depict it. To appreciate how Nolan makes it work, we need to see how earlier films addressed it and missed it. William Wyler's multi-Oscar winning Mrs Miniver was released in 1942, but actually began life before the war even started. Back in 1937, columnist for the Times Jan Struther was writing a weekly column about a middle-class housewife living happily in London's Hampstead Heath. But with the outbreak of the war, Struther quickly changed the focus from running a home to defending the realm. Her columns grew in popularity, were anthologised and published as a novel in 1939. The film version, starring Gary Garson in the title role, was produced to support the war effort. But by the time the film went into production in 1941, events of the war had outpaced Struther's book and so the Dunkirk evacuation was included. But only in passing. Yes, we see Mr Miniver, played by Walter Pigeon, leaving with the armada of small ships. But instead of pursuing that momentous event, the story opts to stay in England, where Mrs Miniver finds herself having to defend the home front all on her own, when she discovers an injured Nazi pilot hiding out at the end of the garden. Yeah, no, it's much better this way. Really it is. You'll be wonderfully looked after in hospital. You'll be safe there. And the war won't last forever. No. Soon we finish it. I'm finished. But others come. Like me. Thousands. Many thousands. Better. In other words, the first movie to deal with the miracle of Dunkirk doesn't depict it at all. Whatever miracle happened there happened off screen. However, within three months of that Hollywood release, the British Ministry for Information had responded with In Which We Serve. But again, that film doesn't really deal with Dunkirk. Written by Noel Coward and co-directed by Coward with David Lean, it was inspired by the missions of HMS Kelly, which was torpedoed and sunk during the Battle of Crete. Coward's script transformed the Kelly's exploits into the fictional HMS Torren, where the crew, frantically awaiting rescue, each recalled the different episodes in the Torren's history which explains why, in which we serve, spends all of four minutes depicting the events at Dunkirk. Which means it was not until 1958 that the colossal evacuation was directly addressed. By then, of course, the fighting was long over, 
so the film was designed not to boost the war effort, but to reboot Britain's national pride, badly damaged by the Suez Crisis two years earlier. Henry, I've come to a decision. I'm going to call off the 5th and the 50th Division from the attack to the south and send them to the left. But, sir, that's against all orders we've had. The French First Army will never attack without their support. I know that. I know that only too well. Anyhow, it's got to be done. We've got to protect our escape route to the north. I'm very worried about this Belgian sector. If they crack, and from my summing up of the situation, I'm sure they will, our chances of withdrawing to Dunkirk are nil. And I am now perfectly certain that is what we shall have to do. With a title as unambiguous as Dunkirk, you might think that this version would fully focus on the evacuation. But directed by Leslie Norman, yes, father of the late BBC critic Barry Norman, it takes a full hour before the convoy of little ships are launched from Britain's coast. Elsewhere in the picture, Norman unsuccessfully mixes archival footage of the actual events with his own reenactments shot on English locations doubling for France. All of which results in a static affair displaying none of the imagination seen in other war pictures of the time, such as David Lean's The Bridge on the River Kwai and Sam Fuller's The Steel Helmet. Who's the... Uh... He's a Korean. Boy, do you know where the Chang Asad Temple is? I ask you, do you know... What's the matter? Doesn't he understand English? Sure. He just doesn't like it. We got fouled up, Zach. We're lost. You don't know that's how it is all the time, Buddhahead. Nobody knows where we are except the enemy. The aggregate of which means it wasn't until 2007, when Joe Wright adapted Ian McEwan's multi-award winning novel, Atonement, that audiences were granted an unalloyed view of the events. However, once more, Dunkirk was only a cameo within a wider story. But what a cameo it is. Wright delivers Dunkirk in a blistering, uninterrupted five-minute steadicam shot that takes us across the beach as the soldiers frantically await evacuation. Just arrived, sir. Can you tell us what we're supposed to be doing? Nothing, just wait. Where are the ships? A few minutes in yesterday, Luftwaffe blew them to buggery. I lost 3,000 men when they sank Lancastria. High command, his infinite wisdom, is denying us air cover. Disgrace. Fucking disaster. No, look, the thing is, you see, I'm, I'm, I'm expected back, you see. There's over 300,000 men on this beach, Private, you have to wait your turn. It'd be great if you're not wounded. I'd order to leave the wounded behind. No, 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 leave it, Gav. Never trust a sailor on dry land. You're best all part of it. Cinematographer Seamus McGarvey earned his first Oscar nomination for the film, and the way the sequence is choreographed, you get a great sense of imminent annihilation. But it is not just the British Expeditionary Forces who are in danger. Civilization is coming apart before our very eyes, and the chaos is made all the more vivid by Wright's decision to have the camera constantly moving, as if it were trying to find an escape route from the impending doom. The miracle of Dunkirk is unique in the history of warfare because almost every other celebrated military operation is about advancing on a target. Here the armed forces are not advancing, they're retreating. Actually they're not even doing that, they're stuck. And who comes to their rescue? The civilian population. With Winston Churchill having become Britain's Prime Minister just 17 days earlier, the evacuation may have initially felt like a humiliation. But without question, the survival galvanised Britain's spirit and gave them the strength to fight on. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. 
We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Grey pictures are either completely original or take something with which we are familiar and so successfully reimagine it, it is as if we are seeing it for the first time. Yet, if we compare Wright's sequence to Nolan's film, you will be forgiven for thinking they were dealing with two different events. Wright's focus was on frantic disintegration, while Nolan details desperate improvisation. Both are equally valid, but what Nolan delivers is a war picture where the enemy are barely even glimpsed as a human entity. And because they are never personified, Nolan is able to explore the vulnerability of war rather than the rage of combat. Classical storytelling is structured around peaks and troughs, the rise and fall of emotional intensity, where the drama moves through a series of crescendos and diminuendos. What sets Nolan's film apart from other war pictures is his determination to take out the troughs and sustain the crescendo. He does so by constructing not just one storyline, but three. He cross-cuts between them so there is never any real downtime that frequently peppers other war pictures. Such moments are used for classical, all-too-familiar purposes, where the screenwriters take the opportunity to flesh out the characters. Nolan's structure demands that he bypasses those moments, and as a result, some critics have complained that it so severely limits character development, we don't get to know who these men are. But we do know who they are. These are servicemen in retreat, and that is all that matters. We don't need to know their names, where they went to school, or whether they have a sweetheart back home. In Nolan's hands, all the characters are faced with dangers so indiscriminate, it does not matter whether you are a common soldier, a commissioned officer, a pilot, paramedic, nurse, or a civilian steering a skiff. You all face the same enemy, death. Your backstory will not rescue you, and so character is formed in the here and now. Here is Christopher Nolan speaking with BBC's Simon Mayo. It's a survival tale, and it's an incredibly primal and fundamental story. The geography of the story, if you like, is very simple. 400,000 men on a beach, their backs to the sea, the enemy closing in on all sides, in sight of home, practically, but no way to get there. And they're faced with the choice between surrender or annihilation. In that respect, Dunkirk isn't so much historical as it is existential. And because Nolan avoids speeches explaining what is at stake, he delivers not so much an intellectual examination of war as a somatic one. The film is something you experience. I really wanted to tell the story subjectively. I immersed myself in first-hand accounts and then I created a fictional set of characters to guide the audience through the events. And I divided my telling of the story into three main strands, broadly speaking, land, sea, and air. And the reason I did this is I wanted to tell everything in a subjective way. I wanted the audience to have an incredibly suspenseful and intense experience. And so rather than cutting to generals in rooms or politicians explaining things, I wanted to stay with a human scale of storytelling, but use these different perspectives to gradually build up a larger picture of the events. We see, hear and feel the soldiers' bravery, fear, isolation, camaraderie, opportunism, heroism, ignorance, obedience and diligence. 
Good people do bad things, and bad things happen to good people. Moments of panic create acts of valour. An attempted rescue only imperils more people. Truth turns into a lie, which is then morphed into a eulogy. Failure is valiant and survival victory. Nolan accumulates those paradoxes to provide a relentless emotional crescendo. And it all works because he uses a plot structure called hyperlink cinema. Hyperlink cinema deploys multiple stories that each move in various directions. Forwards, backwards, sideways. But they are all pivoted around a centrifugal force. Pulp Fiction, Magnolia, Babel all do the same thing. And it is by cutting back and forth between the stories, hyperlinking them, that Nolan and editor Lee Smith are able to sustain the crescendo. Cross-cutting through time is something that Nolan has done in several of his films, most notably The Prestige, Inception and Interstellar. And impressive as sections of those films were, watching Dunkirk, you get the feeling that they were just dress rehearsals for what was delivered here. A lot has been made of Nolan insisting on shooting on celluloid, on 70mm and on location. All of which unquestionably delivers great authenticity. Of course some of those images were captured using live action, model work and digital manipulation. But no matter what, Dunkirk delivers aerial combat footage which is perhaps the greatest in the history of cinema. If not, it is at least on par with the Valkyrie sequence in Apocalypse Now and the dogfights in Howard Hughes's Hell's Angels and William Wellman's Wings. Those films undoubtedly benefited from filming in real time, but securing realism requires more than just putting the camera in a fighter plane and putting that fighter plane in the air. It is about composing your frame and layering in the information. Nolan delivers many startling moments and images, but for me the greatest comes late in the story when Spitfire pilot Ferrier, played by Tom Hardy, engages the Luftwaffe bomber. Nolan shows us an aerial view of the already stricken British minesweeper, with the bomber bearing down on it. Swiftly, Ferrier's Spitfire swoops into view, and suddenly we have three levels of action. The minesweeper in the distance, the threatening bomber in the midground, and the Spitfire in the foreground. Personally, I would have preferred to have seen more such shots. After all, Nolan's story has three areas of action, land, sea and air. And I think he might have dared to develop more such shots to unite all three. You, when you look at the logistical challenges of the film, trying to do things for real, we've got very, very uh, complex aerial unit photography. Pushed that a lot further than we ever have. What I'd never done before is boats. And to sort of go in with what I'm told is the largest marine unit in, in movie history, that was very daunting. And the sheer challenge of trying to orient the boats, get them in the right place, at the right time for the shot with that many vehicles. Um, it's, it's difficult. Several critics have been comparing Nolan to Kubrick, but such assessments do a disservice to both filmmakers. With the exception of Dr. Strangelove, Kubrick streamlined all his plots down to single strands. Which means that beyond his anti-war satire, Kubrick was not interested in cross-cutting. A filmmaker who cross-cut with incredible ease was Akira Kurosawa. The Seven Samurai and his late masterpiece Ran being perfect examples. But again, the comparison to the Japanese Tensai must end there. Kurosawa had initially set out to be a painter, and such was his talent that he secured his first exhibition at the age of 18. When he swapped his canvas for the camera, he proved himself to be one of the greatest practitioners of the cinemascope format. 
Although Nolan has used widescreen for every one of his feature films, save his first, following, he rarely if ever exploits the full width of the frame. Certainly, he does not block the action with Kurosawa's fluid camera movements, where the tension comes from playing the edges of the frame against one another. Instead, Nolan prefers to focus on the middle third of the frame, which might explain his penchant for the IMAX format. Which means, more than anything, Nolan's tension comes from montage. That would move him away from Kubrick and Kurosawa, and closer to Sergei Eisenstein and D.W. Griffith. I say all that not as a criticism of Nolan's ability, but rather a categorization of his colossal talent. And that talent has created one of the greatest ever war pictures.